This is AgriPulse Open Mic. I'm your host, Jeff Nelly. Our guest this week is Ambassador Alan Johnson, President of Alan F. Johnson & Associates, former Chief Agriculture Negotiator for the United States at the U.S. Trade Representative's Office. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by Bayer. Learn more about the Bayer Bee Care Program at beehealth.bayer.us. AgriPulse Open Mic continues with Ambassador Alan Johnson next. While growers and beekeepers may seem unlikely friends, the work within both industries easily intersects to create positive environmental impact all around. That's why Bayer created the CARE program. CARE is an acronym reminding growers to communicate, be aware, reduce dust, and ensure correct planting practices to reduce risk to pollinators during planting season. Now, in its sixth year, Bayer encourages growers to embrace responsible stewardship practices with four simple tips. Communicate planting activities with neighboring beekeepers. Be aware of wind speed and direction during planting. Help reduce the amount of dust released by using Fluency Agent Advanced as their seed lubricant and ensure seed is planted correctly. Visit beehealth.bayer.us for more information on land and product stewardship. This is AgriPulse Open Mic. The Trump campaign promised action to bring about fair trade for the United States. Now as president, the Trump administration has levied tariffs and threatened others with additional sanctions to close trade deficits and protect U.S. jobs. Some argue the risk isn't worth the reward. Former U.S. Trade Ambassador Alan Johnson says... President Trump is staying true to his word. He was clearly elected on a a platform that he was going to be a change agent, and that included trade, and he campaigned very hard on that. He didn't didn't hide on that issue. So I think it's very clear that if President Trump got elected, you would have to expect that there was going to be some pretty uh, uh, dramatic efforts made to change the terms of trade with various trading partners that they, they're concerned about, and particularly those that we have trade deficits with, and particularly large trade deficits with. And so I think when you look at other campaigns, other elections, really trade didn't play nearly as central a part in, in the election itself. And you didn't see uh, candidates running as, as, in, um, from that sort of platform. They were much more likely to be maybe some nuance changes, but for the most part, uh, moving forward with the U.S. trade policy as it existed. I remember we used to watch the presidential debates and sort of hope that there'd be a mention uh, in the debate or the State of the Union in in trade, or or let alone agricultural trade. Well, in the last election, they were it was all over the place, so you didn't have to go hoping for a line here or there. It was actually a central theme in the campaign. Has this president created conflicts, or is it the reaction to conditions that already existed? Well, I I don't look at it as he created conflicts. I I look at President Trump as from a negotiator's point of view. And I've said for 30 years, you know, what you need in a trade negotiator is they can't be risk-averse. They've got to be thick-skinned. They've got to be an eternal optimist, and they've got to be a problem solver. And I think if you look at President Trump, you know, over the period of his life, not just public life in, in politics, but his personal life in the private sector, you, you have to say that he, he fits that description. And, you know, I don't personally have any problems with trying to improve agreements. 
I don't have any trouble with being tough in negotiations. And, and I think on some issues that he campaigned on where he talked about other countries not doing enough, I, I don't disagree with that. I mean, in the WTO, I think other countries should have done more in trying to uh, move the ball forward. Instead, they're often we're waiting for the U.S. to make a move without them having to do anything. I think uh, I also agree that we haven't always leveraged all the all the assets and influence that we have in order to get even better deals. And I don't have any problem with him being a tough negotiator. I think it's actually helpful from the level I was at to have a boss uh, that's a tough negotiator because it, I used it all the time. So you can deal with me or you can deal with him. And, and then we're also dealing with something 20 years later that, different in the sense that we're a democracy. And as such, it's hard sometimes for us to keep a view on the long term. And, and other countries that aren't democracies, and China's a perfect example of that, simply uh, use that and kind of wait us out. And it takes courage for a political leader to take the risk of a crisis on their watch versus the temptation to just sort of kick back and let the consequences fall where they may down the road, sometimes fall, getting to the point that they're, they're irretrievable. So some of the things that President Trump is trying to do, I think, are problems that have existed. Some have existed for a long time. I don't think anybody who's been following intellectual property or technology is surprised uh, by, the, by China's policies. They've, those policies have existed for a long time, and they've taken advantage of the of their trading partners' willingness to uh, to kind of accept that, and Trump's not willing to do that. So to that extent, he d- he deserves credit for for taking on a very difficult issue that has very serious consequences to every every sector in, in the U.S. down the road. And the other thing is, anytime you're trying to make change, even if it's even if it's good change, there's resistance to it. There's an inertia to it. So you know, the president and his team have to sort of rock the boat in order to get people to recalibrate their policies according to a, a different uh, paradigm that uh, he, was, I think, has been very clear about in his campaigning and since he's been in office, the things that he thinks are important. And again, it's hard to argue he wasn't elected to do just that. He was very clear about it and made it a central theme of his campaign. But at the same time, he was supported by the Rust Belt and supported by the Farm Belt. And those two don't necessarily have the same attitude toward trade because those who would support the tariffs on steel and aluminum to preserve U.S. jobs and industry are the same ones uh, from agriculture that are challenged with some of the retaliation that's coming back at the ag industry. Now, can you satisfy both sides of that fence? First of all, from the agriculture point of view, we are a beneficiary of trade, and we've actually been very very loud about that in terms of uh, when we go to the Hill or when we, we talk about trade, we talk about it in glowing terms. What at least I failed to realize, and I think others did too, is that there's other sectors that were very negative about the same trade agreements that we were celebrating, which I think has, has come around to have a consequence because they are, are important voters from important states, and you've seen an evolution in uh, U.S. trade policy as a result of that. And it's not just President Trump. You have to remember that in the Democrat Party, both candidates were basically running uh, with a similar sort of a trade agenda. And so as the American public, uh, you were left with two candidates that in the general election that, at least in their public pronouncements, didn't present a lot of difference between the two of them. And so I think what President Trump's team believes is that the U.S. has a lot of leverage it hasn't used, 
that it has uh, a lot of influence that it hasn't used, and that we can do things that are good for both sides of, of that equation, the, the industrial side as well as the agricultural side as well as intellectual property and technology side, and that the U.S. market and opportunities are created by U.S. investment are big enough that they can fundamentally change some of these trade relationships so that we don't have to choose between them, but rather multiple sectors become beneficiaries instead of some feeling like they're losers in the the process while others are feeling very good about it. There are congressional calls now to end the metals tariffs, especially with key allies, including Canada, Mexico, Europe, and Japan. Should Congress be involved, and if they are, if you were negotiating, what would that mean? Well, I think Congress should always be involved. I think one of the one of the things that we sort of ignored or pretended not to notice was that the trade agenda for some time has been uh, sort of living on the edge. You know, when we got uh, TPA uh, during the Bush administration, we basically won it by one vote. Uh, when we got CAFTA DR through the Congress, we won it by one vote. And you saw several trade agreements that when the Republicans left office, that just sat for years. And now you see what happened with TPP. So I think we have to recognize that that as a practical matter, we're going to need to have congressional involvement. We're going to need to have a, a broader base to work from. Does it weaken your position, though, if Congress ties your hands of using tariffs? Again, the whole idea behind TPA in general uh, is that it, it tells the, the person across the table from you that you represent the U.S. government in in these negotiations, and what you say can be taken to the bank, at least taken to the bank in the sense that that agreement will be voted up or down by the Congress. What the what the administration uh, seems to be trying to do is use multiple vari- bring multiple variables to the table in order to create a broader conversation about you know any trade relationship, whether it's a bilateral one with China or whether it's NAFTA or, you know, any of these sorts of trade frictions that we have going on now, they seem to be trying to introduce new variables, which in general, if, if it's done appropriately, can be a positive thing in the sense that it, it allows you to have more tools to work with to create a synergetic relationship that both sides can see positive outcome from. Sometimes when you get too confrontational on one particular issue, you get myopic about it instead of trying to look at a broader picture. And we, we did that. I mean, we, when we would negotiate, when things got stuck, we'd try to bring new issues to the table. The difference is, is they're using tools that haven't been used for a long, long time, and they're doing it in, I'd argue, a much more dramatic way than it's been used in a long, long time. But I think they would say that they're doing that because they need some dramatic change. They need some significant changes in the terms of trade that people have just gotten too comfortable with and they've concluded is a net negative to the U.S., and that's what they campaigned on. Some in Congress have suggested that because these are allies, because there is more at stake than just the balance of trade, we should take it easier on some of those countries. Well, I think you can disagree with your friends and negotiate with your friends and come up with agreements. And in order to come up with an agreement, you have to disagree a lot sometimes. I'm actually generally... Uh, you know, if you're asking where things are going to go, I, I think there's a better than 50-50 chance here that, that we're going to be in better shape at the end of this than we are now. I, I could see an agriculture, more agricultural exports to China. I could see a potential deal with Japan. I could see other deals with, with Asia, 
the UK, which, you know, we could never have done a deal with the EU as it was. I think it would be foolish not to think there's not going to be rough patches in the process, and you're seeing that now and with China, and you're seeing it in the NAFTA negotiations. Really, if, as Trump has been, sees himself as a change agent, you have to accept that that's the reality of the job that you ran for and your responsibility is to do some pretty significant things to, to cause an attitude adjustment among your friends as well as your competitors. I'm, I'm not surprised by some of these things in the sense that I don't think they felt they were getting the reaction from the people they were negotiating with in as dramatic a way as they expected, and therefore they're rocking the boat in order to get more attention to it now. It's going to be interesting to watch how this thing unfolds in the coming weeks and months. But I'm also, I think things can happen fairly quickly. You know, people forget that when we were negotiating all these free trade agreements, we ended up closing, I believe at one point we closed free trade agreements with eight countries in a three-month period. So, you know, once you sort of get on the same page as the people you're negotiating with and you uh, understand who you're negotiating with and what the parameters are, you can come to conclusions fairly quickly. And again, I mean, some of the things from an agriculture point of view, uh, on, on one side, they're very concerning, you know, if you're a pork producer or a soybean producer. But on the other side, you recognize, you can recognize that there are also upward opportunities that uh, could be realized if these negotiations are successful. Some have questioned whether it was wise for the U.S. to take on China by themselves and wondered if perhaps they might have had more success had a group of countries come together. What's the up and down side of that? First of all, I don't think in some ways we are taking on by ourselves. I mean, I think the intellectual property issue, for example, is one that a lot of countries agree with. You know, Japan, Europe, and others recognize that China has been using not just unfair but arguably illegal actions in order to appropriate intellectual property and technology from, from other countries and companies from other countries. So I, I wouldn't argue, I would say that on some of these issues, we're not on our own. On, on other issues, they're by nature bilateral issues. You know, what your tariffs are going into a country uh, versus what they are coming into your country uh, is, a, is a bilateral issue. You know, we talk about CAFTA-DR, for example. CAFTA-DR was a, was a regional agreement in many aspects, but it was also a bilateral negotiation, one country at a time, one tariff at a time. And uh, and so I think a lot of the things the Trump administration is trying to change are the terms of trade between the U.S. and whoever that trading partner is, and particularly China in the example you gave. And so that, by nature, uh, is is uh, is going to be antagonistic between the two parties. I found many times when I was negotiating, and this is when the WTO was very active, for example, where we'd be trying to get coalitions of countries to uh, to do things. And, uh, and, and ultimately, because of their own dynamics, they would be uh, wishing me well, hoping we succeed, but they weren't willing to take the lead with us. And so I think some of what Trump is trying to do, again, and, and dramatically, uh, in some ways, changing the terms of trade, is he's trying to take the lead um, in using all the influence the U.S. has in order to get better terms of trade for, for the U.S. In, in multiple sectors, not obviously just agriculture. What is an upside of the negotiations with China? And if it comes to a trade war, who bleeds the most? Well, I, I think the upside from the, from, uh, if you're in the intellectual property or technology world, that uh, you'd be able to, uh, service that huge market without giving up your, uh, your trade secrets. Uh, 
uh, and that you know that has a long term advantage. You, you know, you don't want a situation where in order to get into the market, you get an initial hit, you, know, you get an initial bump, and then a couple of years later. Uh, China has companies using your technology to compete with you, not just in China, but around the world. From an agricultural point of view, China has a lot of needs that U.S. agriculture can service and, uh, and has been servicing, but there's clearly even more, and they've, they've talked about that, as you've seen in these uh, negotiations. Um, uh, but obviously, you know, one of, the, one of the consequences for U.S. agriculture in terms of being a beneficiary of trade, and, and I think most in U.S. agriculture would agree with that, is that, and also being politically influential, um, is that you become one of the first targets uh, when there's a trade problem. And, uh, and we use that. I mean, when we're negotiating with people on the other side, we often will tell the person across the table from us, you know, in order to get a deal, you need to satisfy U.S. agriculture, which includes this commodity or that commodity. There was many times where I didn't really have much more to give in agriculture, but I keep asking for more. And that's because we have a lot of influence, and we use that to get good deals for us. And when you when you get that, and the other side uh, then feels like they're being... Uh, uh, attacked or there's a, you know, a trade dispute, then they're going to go back to that well and say, uh, well, these agricultural products have benefited from this trade relationship and we also understand they're politically influential. So we're going to make the U.S. feel some discomfort so that they don't push us so hard. And, and the Trump administration so far, at least, has been willing to take some of those, uh, hits or take some of those risks or threats in keeping their eye on these, these other issues that uh, they campaigned on uh, in believing that uh, those issues need to be addressed fundamentally. Uh, again, not just because of what's going on now, which is, which is not good in some cases, but looking at the longer-term picture as to where things are you know, 10, 20 years from now. And again, for the Trump administration to do that, knowing that some of the upside may never be recognized because it, you know, it's hard to say uh, what you... Uh, avoided happening uh, 20 years from now and obviously the risk is they're taking on in a current political environment in an election year in this case at the congressional level and two and a half years an election at the at the presidential level so far they've been pretty consistent i think in in that message whether it's at home or abroad uh, which is uh you know, we haven't seen that in recent years. This president has suggested that he's more about bilateral trade than multilateral, but appeared to be making an exception with the renegotiation of the North American Free Trade Agreement. As those talks now appear to have stalled, we've heard more comment from the administration about perhaps doing away from NAFTA and going to individual deals with both of our neighbors. What are your thoughts? Well, in general, I just gave you the example of CAFTA. You know, CAFTA was a regional agreement, but there's a lot of bilateral aspects to it. And so you can accomplish a lot of the same things in a bilateral negotiation that you can in a, in a multilateral negotiation and, and in some ways with, with, uh, with a little bit more clear uh, set of issues that you're dealing with. Um, so, you know, when you talk about Canada and Mexico, I think fundamentally there's going to be a group of things, and in fact they've already closed several chapters, that all the parties agree on, whether that's in a bilateral relationship or in a, in a, in a, uh, in a, in a, in a three-party relationship. 
And and so the issue is really, to me, is going to be what what is the substance? If Canada can take into consideration what the U.S. has agreed with Mexico and what they've agreed with Mexico in the in their relationship with, in determining what they're going to do with the U.S. And that's really what happens in these things. As I said, when we negotiated uh, any of these multilateral agreements, a lot of it was done in a bilateral context. And, and each country has their own tariff schedules. Each country has well many of the, their own set of rules, but also have many things that are common sets of rules. To me, it's let's see what's what the substance is. I, I think there's a lot to be said for NAFTA as it is, and I think the current political environment is a difficult environment to negotiate NAFTA in right now, because you have, you know, the our congressional we have we have right now primaries going on in many states. We have a presidential election in Mexico in, next month, uh, and then we have our own congressional elections in the fall. Uh, and it's pretty clear by now that it's almost impossible to get NAFTA through the Congress, you know, b- before the election. So you'd have a, an agreement that will be hanging out there during an election, which we saw on TPP that that also happened, and basically both presidential candidates ran against it, and uh, and a lot of congressional candidates ran against it, including some that uh, would otherwise have been for it, but in the, in the heat of a political campaign and that dynamic, uh, they ended up taking positions that uh, that would get them through the election. So I think this is a difficult environment to negotiate uh, a uh, NAFT in, you know, over the next six months, and then whether or not it, it's concluded in a bilateral sense or in a multilateral sense, you know, we'll have to wait and see. Again, people forget that even in CAFTA, we closed with the four Central America, four uh, Central American countries first. Then later we closed with Costa Rica, and then even later we closed with the Dominican Republic. And then they all ended up coming together to become what we know of as CAFTA DR, and that's what Congress eventually voted on. So I'm a little bit more in the context of I want to get the best deal possible under the under whatever circumstances we need to uh, to get it. And sometimes you have to think creatively in order in order to do that. Well, Ambassador Johnson, we want to thank you very much for your service to the country, your service to agriculture, and for taking time for us on this edition of Open Mic. It is Open Mic, and you have the last word. Well, first of all, thanks for having me. I think Agra Pulse is a great organization. I've always enjoyed reading your stuff and working with you over the years. I think this is an issue that is, is going to get a lot of attention over the coming months and I think years, because even if we close, for example, with China uh, and, and, uh, and avoid an immediate problem on uh, intellectual property and, and technology transfer, we'll, we'll, there's going to be a lot of uh, interests in China that are going to want to continue the same things. So, so making sure that these agreements are enforced uh, is going to you know, not always be an easy process. And as we talked about, agriculture is always going to be the first uh, issue brought up whenever there's trade frictions. Uh, with China or a lot of other countries. Our thanks to Ambassador Alan Johnson, President of Alan F. Johnson and Associates, our guest this week on Open Mic. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by Bayer. Learn more about the Bayer Bee Care Program at behealth.bayer.us. For AgriPulse, I'm Jeff Daly.